This is episode number 253, Building Authentic Diversity in Cycling with Growth Cycling Foundation's Elliot Jackson. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. For me, like my role, I feel like is like the infrastructure layer where I want there to be a path to like entry. And then I want you to have a great time. Like once you're here, because again, like we're building a pump track in Los Angeles. And right now, if you were to try to get into mountain bikes, like you have to drive an hour outside the city. So like, even if I'm super educated and the cycling industry is all on board and super inclusive, like that person in Los Angeles will still never be able to ride the bike. And so I think for me, it's like, how do we provide if my role is the infrastructure layer and allowing other people to like have the voice of education and, and really teach people what the barriers are, then I can say like, cool, now that we know that, let's provide the path. I'm so grateful that you are here and that you're listening to this podcast. I know there's a lot of options out there. I have lots of podcasts that I subscribe to and just I wanted to say thanks. Knowing that this podcast is getting out there and helping people change their lives for the better is one of the reasons I get out of bed this morning. So if you share the show with your friends, I would greatly appreciate it so that it can bring value to them too. So let's talk about today's podcast guest, Elliot Jackson. He is a former motocross rider and a World Cup downhill bike racer and is now a presenter for Red Bull TV and an entrepreneur. He is a published author in multiple national and international magazines. And he's also the chairman of the Grow Cycling Foundation, created shortly after the 2020 George Floyd protests. With the knowledge that the cycling world is not immune from a culture of exclusivity and racism, the foundation was created to deliver new avenues for inclusive community building, career development in the cycling industry, and tearing down barriers to entry in cycling for marginalized communities. The Grow Cycling Foundation promotes education, access, and opportunities to increase diversity and inclusion in cycling. The foundation believes that cycling has a unique ability to address intersecting areas where specific communities have been underserved. They invest in programs that build belongingness in cycling by creating inclusive cycling spaces. One of their first initiatives is building a Velo Solutions pump track in Los Angeles to bring a cycling ecosystem to an area that has never had this sort of opportunity. In this week's episode, I sit down with Elliot to talk about his racing career, work ethic, and being a black athlete in a white-dominated sport. You'll also learn more about the Grow Cycling Foundation and its mission. This podcast is really powerful, and Elliot is such a great guy. You'll also learn what makes Elliot love the bike so much, the understanding of variance in success and the path to success, fulfillment coming from doing things you love. Identity is not just about the things that you do, understanding different perspectives to communicate the right way, and about the Grow Cycling Foundation. I think that you're going to learn a lot in this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm due for an inside tracker retest. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that they are a supporter of the show. And if you haven't heard of them, Inside Tracker is a company that puts your health reins in your own hands. I don't know about you, but I really like to have that sense of power and sense of knowledge over my own health. And Inside Tracker is a company that offers blood work and the analysis of blood work that has really tight ranges for athletes. 
So they measure over 30 biomarkers, things like cortisol, things like inflammation, which you might've heard about in the plant-based athlete podcast and book, things like magnesium, vitamin D, hormones, and so much more. There's so much insight that you can gain from getting one of these tests done. And then they make recommendations based on lifestyle changes and diet to improve some of these biomarkers. And then you can retest to see if it's working. They also offer inner age testing and it's just such a great opportunity to be able to walk into a lab or you can even have someone come into your house and just days later get some really insightful results. Getting a big picture view of your health and wellness is not only a good idea, but it's also empowering to know what to do in order to enhance your performance and see tangible results. So go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to receive 25% off all of their tests. I prefer the ultimate tests. And if you do try it, I'd love to hear what you think. And are you on my newsletter? It's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I send out an email every Monday with a research topic or an insightful piece of information to help you with your mindset and your mental performance. I also include the podcast of the week and whatever small bits of news that I have. So go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, and I'll see you on email. And with that said, let's get into this podcast with Elliot Jackson. Elliot, I'm so excited that you're here on the show. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. I was laughing that you said you did a bunch of research on me before we started recording. Yeah, well, you've been on lots of podcasts already, which makes my job a lot easier. And I just love getting to hear your story. And I encourage people to check out, let's see, I heard you on the Trainer Road podcast, the Downtime podcast, the REI podcast, and... Uh, MTB something it's like worldwide cyclery oh, or something totally yeah I don't, I don't wow. know. so if anyone wow. is is wanting more of Elliot after this which you probably will that's where you need to go <laughs> wait which one was your favorite oh my gosh they're all pretty different probably the the world oh really world, yeah like I love racing and we're going to talk about racing a little bit but I love hearing about all the other things outside of racing because I think that you know, we're not just machines that race bikes, like we're, we're humans. And there are so many different elements and dynamics behind the people that pedal the bikes and do all the things in the community. So I'm, I was so excited to learn. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about oh, that. You love it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's dive in. Yeah. So I guess people listening might not be, if they're not familiar with you, can you give us like the bird's eye view of your background? Yes. Okay. So I grew up in Oklahoma I moved to California when I was like 11 or 12 and I was racing motocross. And during that time, it's funny to think back because it, that was probably like the most serious time in my life. Like we were pro amateur kid athletes. Uh, we were riding like, you know, six days a week. I like went to sixth grade. No, no, no. Homeschooled sixth grade, went to seventh grade and then just kind of like opted out of school after that, like middle school dropout. Um <laughs> And which I ended up like finishing later on, but that's kind of cool. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of my like early childhood. And then after I moved to California, we like stopped racing motocross when I was maybe 15. Did some random stuff, went to school, did like half of my degree and then started racing mountain bikes a lot when I was 18. That was like when I first went and rode in Whistler, actually, when I was 18. And that was my first kind of experience in the downhill bike. And I just loved it. I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. I 
I didn't even know it exists. My fr- my brother and I used to like make fun of mountain bikers because we always just saw them jumping off of cliffs and crashing. And like, we didn't understand how they just wouldn't like die. But it was this whole new world where like I had loved racing motocross and like that competition and improvement and stuff like that. And then like, it was this, um, and I had ridden bikes before, but like, here was this other avenue that I could pursue after I stopped racing motocross. So I did that, raced at World Cups for... I don't know, till 2017. And then I just like stopped because I just wasn't like having fun riding my bike. And there was like a bunch of stuff kind of like around that, but at the core of it, like that was what it was. You can like fix everything else except for that. Uh, so I was like, man, I should try to explore some other stuff with the bike. Like I've been, I would go to these places, fly in, go to the venue and then fly out. We would be like, how was France? I'd be like, airport was sweet, um, like good snacks and hotel was cool and uh, don't know anything else. So I was like, why don't I go and travel and visit some friends, stand some couches, um, do some other stuff with the bike that I hadn't done. And that was kind of my like 2018, 19 stuff. And then last year, just kind of like <laughs> got really busy, like started to grow cycling foundation and kind of transition into this role, I guess in 19 as well, I started doing some stuff for Red Bull, kind of going to the races, yelling at my friends, telling them how I would be way better if I was still riding. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, yeah, so I think this like last two years has been this transition into like riding the bike, talking about the bike, trying to bring the bike to more people, like a holistic view of like bicycles. <laughs> awesome. There's so much there that you said, but the first thing I want to ask you is what makes riding the bike fun for you? Uh, it's different in different contexts, right? Like I think my personality, I just love mastery. I love like trying to master things and get better. And that was kind of what the World Cups provided me was this thing where I could just, it was all I did, right? Like I could just dial in on this little thing. How can I tune my bike better? Just the spoke tension or, you know, to my body, whether it's like eating or training or like all of these things. And I love that I could just dive into this thing and improve. Um, that was what like, gave me the most satisfaction. But I think um, like more on the riding side, if you said like, that's what introduced me to the bike. But now like when I ride, it's like having those perfect days with friends where you're going, like usually it's on a downhill bike and you're just riding it's like perfect conditions you can do no wrong you just ride until like you can't ride anymore where it's like the sun goes down or the lift closes or whatever and it like takes me back to when i was a kid riding at the dirt jumps and you just like just like stayed there until dark and i think that that kind of uh it's like what i look forward to those like days are rare but like i think they just are so cool when you have them and i definitely look forward to those Yeah. It almost seems like on those days, there's like a sense of mental freedom because you're so just like in the moment Mm -hmm. and also just a sense of adventure that, like you said, it doesn't click most days, but when it does, it's like the best. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's so true. And like, I think it's also rare that you realize how good it is in the moment. And I think like, maybe that's one of the things that make it so good. It's like, you're like, oh, this is one of those days. And like, I'm just going to like keep riding or whatever. Like everything is going perfectly. It's not to say that the days when it's not like that and riding bike sucks. Like I'm going to ride right after this podcast. But um, yeah, I think those days are just above and beyond. So you said that you weren't really into school, but I heard you say on another podcast that 
you were homeschooled and you just found your way around the system where you wrote your own code so that you could just get the answers. How old, were you, how old were you when you did that? And where did that like thinking outside the box come from? Oh, man. <laughs> the moment you're talking about is I must have been in sixth grade. So I don't know how old you are, maybe 11 or something. And we were doing this back in the day, back in the old days. We had these, these you could have like software, homeschool software. I'm, I'm sure they still have it. But they had student mode and teacher's mode. And to get into teacher's mode, you just had to put in a password. And then it would give you all the answers for that lesson. And it's so funny to think about, there was CD disc <laughs> that you would put in and it, was, it would be like, here's month one, this one, here's month two, this two. But anyway, so I was like, man, not really like down for this. Like, I don't really want to do school right now. So I spent like, and I have always been into computers and video games and all of these things. So it wasn't like I just out of the blue, but I had started trying to learn how to code. And I was like, well, one of the things I can do with this is get the teacher's mode password. And to do that, I would go on these message boards and like ask all of these people, like, how do I get key presses? And then they would tell me, and then I would be like, okay, how do I get key presses? But I don't want the person to know that there's a program running. And they would be like, what are you trying to do? Like, who are you? But I ended up, I ended up getting the teacher's mode password from my mom. Like she typed it in to check and see if I had done. And then I was like, sweet, like went to my program after she left the computer, got it. Next day I put it in, get all my answers or whatever. And I do it in like 10 minutes. And she's like, how did you get done with school in 10 minutes? And I was like, oh, just was feeling it today, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe I should be smarter about this. Like I should probably take a little bit longer, but, um, I think so <laughs> that was that story. And like, I, I think that I've, my parents are both entrepreneurs and they've, even though I wasn't going to school in these times where I was racing motocross, they did this amazing job in instilling this confidence and teaching lessons, right? Like when you're going to ride motocross and race motocross, it's not just about like racing motocross. It's like, how do you market yourself? Why are you valuable? Why should somebody sponsor you? What's the business model of these companies? Like, why would they want to do this in the first place? Like, what is our budget when we travel all of these places? And so I was really lucky to have parents that did that. And then being able to see them, right? Like they came from nothing. And you had my mom who started an investment bank from the kitchen table in Oklahoma. And that was why we moved out to California because she was able to actually raise money as a stay-at-home mom to buy this shell of an investment bank, hire brokers and run a successful business and eventually sell it. But like to see them do these things to, to be solution finders rather than like problem finders to say, okay, we need to get sponsored or, you know, I need to finish school or, you know, I, I do these things like, and I, one of the examples I always give is when I got my giant contract in my resume, I didn't even put my race results, even though I was trying to get on like a factory race team, because I was like, that's not why you're hiring me. Like you're hiring me because like you guys need somebody that can communicate, that can like bridge the gap between fans and like these untouchable athletes. You're also hiring me because of my potential. Like, and here's like the split times, blah, 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 blah. Here's the trend of my like, like kind of career or whatever. And so it wasn't just about me saying, oh, here's my race results. And like, here's how much they're worth. Like I really had to tell the story because on paper, I looked a lot worse than a lot of other people, but like, I still wanted to find a ride. So it was kind of 
always just about, okay, here's a problem. Like, how do you frame the problem in a way that makes it to where you can find a solution? Yeah, it sounds like your parents have been a really amazing influence in your life. And they're really big picture thinkers. And that really rubbed off on you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think um, I have like I have the best of both worlds because my dad is just this insanely hard worker, just like my whole life. He has this like the most solid work that work ethic I've ever even heard of. And then you have my mom, who is like this big, huge thinker, like bigger than you could ever even imagine. Like, I think I'm thinking big and then I'll tell her an idea or whatever. And she's like, huh, what if we could like scale that to the entire world? Or what if we could do this or that? Um, And so I think I have a bit of both of that where I've always, I think all of my family kind of approaches things like this, where it's like, I... I believe like to be successful, like one of the ways you do that is just by like working harder than everyone else. You know, when, and I think it was kind of like that when I first started riding mountain bikes, where it's like, I wasn't, I was fortunate enough to have saved up money to go to a world cup, but it wasn't like, oh, I need to find a sponsor. It's like, oh, if I win the race then like somebody will call me, Um, which is like, what happened? That doesn't always happen unless you win a world cup, (laughs) which I didn't do. But yeah, I think that, that like that, just that idea of like, thinking big and then working hard to achieve those goals and like being consistent with that is something that has like been for sure instilled in me and like has always kind of guided the way I think. Yeah. And you can take that so many places, you know, off the bike or that in motocross you've done in all of your endeavors now. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned confidence a few times and especially for teenagers and and for many adults, confidence is a difficult thing to come by. And whenever you're putting yourself out there, like in motocross, for example, I'm sure that you had lots of times where things didn't go well and thing, times when you thought you should quit. And I'm sure that happened again whenever you're riding bikes. So like, where does that intersection of confidence and then facing reality of sometimes you do come up short? Like, how do you stay confident in those situations? Right, I think... <laughs> For me, that confidence, there's like two aspects of it. It's like, one is that I've failed so many times that like failure is not so bad anymore. Like obviously you're disappointed when something doesn't go right, but you know that to achieve anything, like you have to fail. And like, that's the only way to learn. And then, so you have this kind of like getting more used to failure. Like, what does it look like for me to try, you know, to train, to train like, all off season for years or whatever, like go into the first race and then crash and not be able to race. Right. Like I just spent six months training every single day. And then I go to the first race and like, I can't even race because I just crashed. And like, yes, it's like so disappointing, but if you were to give up then like, like understanding that there is just variance in success, like it, even if you do the perfect thing, you will still like fail. That's just like part of it. And so like people talk about this all the time. It's just like focusing on the process more so than focusing on the outcome because the next week you can have somebody like it happens all the time in sports where you have a one, the first race or the first event or whatever, and team gets blown out of the water. And then the next event they win. And it's like, well, if they would have taken that failure and just been like, I don't know, we're, we're done. <laughs> like Back to the drawing board. Then like they wouldn't have had that next win. And then I think the next piece of confidence is just being prepared, right? Like 
knowing that I think in all areas, but like, I think it's something I learned from sports mostly where I didn't have to worry about, there's like a lot of things that you can't control, but one of the things you can control is like how much you've prepared. And so I knew like when I went to a race, like I'm fit, I'm fast, I'm my bike's right. Like you can take all of those things off the table. And like, I can't control like if I'm gonna make a mistake or whatever, but I don't have to have any anxiety around these things. So yeah, I think just like getting comfortable with like failing and, and like preparing as much as you can. Yeah. And it sounds like the goal setting process for you is about doing your best every single day leading up to the event. And also goal setting is about the path of mastery, not necessarily the mastery itself. Yeah, I would agree. Like it, which is, it's a funny thing because it, I think it is personal or maybe I'm just weird, like around what satisfies people. But I remember I got second at Crankworks, which is like a big event or whatever. And I was like, and a bunch of top World Cup athletes were there, like G. Atherton, Sam Hill's there. And I like beat everyone but one person. And I was up on the podium and I was like, man, like, I don't really feel any different than I did yesterday. (laughs) And it was this realization that for me, like, it isn't the destination. It was like all of the stuff that led up to that, like, all of the things and like getting that run, like actually executing all of this stuff that I had trained for. And that was just a side effect of doing the work. And not to say that I didn't enjoy it and bloody spray champagne, but, (laughs) but yeah, I think it was like an interesting like moment for me to be like, Oh, cool. Like that's not what does it for me. Like what does it is like all of the stuff leading up. I'm so glad that you brought that point up because this is something I love to bring up frequently is that we think we're going to be happy when we achieve something and we put our happiness into the future. And it's, you know, you and I are fortunate that we've had successes in our career and I certainly haven't stood on any world cup podium, but you know, enough where I, I can relate with that. What you said of like, I worked really hard and I got to this like pinnacle point and then it wasn't what I thought it would be. So for you, like, where do you think fulfillment, you, you mentioned the work, but like, where else does fulfillment come from? And how do you celebrate success? Yeah, I think like that point is like, so accurate. Like if I could just like highlight that, which is, I think one of the things you do get from like success or achieving goals is knowing that that's not the be all end all or whatever. Like I, I think there is like some privilege around like even being able to do that because you could go your whole life and have a carrot on the stick and never reach it, which is, I don't know. It's like an interesting thing, but I think like fulfillment for me, like comes from just doing what I love to do. And I don't think it's a, cause I don't think it's like very static. Like if you would have talked to me, you know, four years ago, I'd have been like, I just love racing world cups. And if you would have talked to me like two years ago, I'd have been like, Oh, I just love programming. And like, you know, you talk to me today and I'm like, I love, you know, doing a bunch of stuff. Like there's like not one thing. It's like a bunch of little things or whatever. So I think for me that like target is always moving, but I think at the core, like that's what I, where I like, I feel the best is when I, um, I'm just like doing what is like kind of core to my personality at the time. And I think probably like that mastery and achievement stuff, like I pretty focused person, I guess. I like doing that, like really enjoy like working hard and like for, but just kind of for myself, like seeing myself improve and, and things like that is really makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah. And like, 
following your curiosity, doing all these different things and being, it takes courage to follow your curiosity. Like you could continue doing the same thing because it's safe and because you know, you're good at it. And again, I can relate with you on this as well, because it's, yeah, it's it's almost like you can't stop yourself, but it's scary to do that, to see what, what, what happens over here if I lift up this rock. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I always describe it like pulling the string. Like when you first start pulling it, you're like, oh, okay. Like it's okay. And then like, you can just keep pulling it and things just keep getting more and more interesting as you dive in. And like, I, I think personally for me, like I've never found something that's not interesting if you just pull the string enough and like follow it deep enough. But I think, yeah, for sure it does. It's always hard, right? And I think, especially for me, the first time I've made like a decent amount of transitions in my life where I've had this thing that's like super all encompassing, like motocross or mountain bikes or whatever. And as soon as you switch, you kind of lose that identity. And like, kind of how do you deal with that? Like, I think that's why you see so many athletes who retire and then come back because they're like, I I gave it a shot, couldn't find anything. Let's go back (laughs) to like being an athlete. And it, and it like feels bad. Like there's so many things that feel good about being good at something. Just like the control you have over, like for me, like my bike, you know, the friends that you've made, the places you go and, and the way and the things you think about. So like being able to be comfortable with kind of like going back to that state of being a beginner at something is, I think something it's like, for me, I've like come to love when it's like, cool, I'm going to learn how to do this new thing. And I think the cool thing to me is like that all these skills translate where you see a lot of athletes who go on to be successful business people or vice versa, because you kind of know, okay, it takes this much work. Like I need to talk to these people. I'm going to fail like a whole lot, (laughs) but it'll get better. Like I've I've done this before kind of thing. Yeah, there's the, I mean, we're humans and external validation is something that we all want you you know many people wouldn't want to admit that out loud but like it feels good to get that external validation but having a a healthy relationship with it and then like you said like i'm going to start this new thing i might fail at it but that doesn't mean that i am a failure like we'll personalize the failure and then like knowing that you can shift that identity and and yeah I, i love that you talked about identity because it's that's a tricky thing because especially like well for me i became a mom last year and mom and identity that's, like that, that's all a big part of the the conversation as well so i've thought a lot about like what does identity mean uh, identity isn't necessarily the things that you do and it sounds like for you like the person you are is is very clear to you underneath all the things that you do and all the transitions you've had i mean i like to i'm working on it <laughs> like and i think it's like one of those things you like always work on like sometimes you have it really clear sometimes you lose it but I think that is like very true. The, the like more you can peel back the layers of like what's going on at the time and really say like, what do like I want? It's like the better, you know, because yeah, it just helps with everything. Like I was talking to one of my friends today, actually, and we were talking about like teams, like for riding bikes. And I was like, yeah, I think the more... I matured as a rider, the better I was at like picking the right spot for me to be because I can be like, okay, I can totally deal with like a bad meal and a track or like accommodation that's far away, but I can't deal with like, you know, an annoying teammate or something like that. And so like some people would be like totally opposite. Like, yeah, I can totally deal with like bad sleeping conditions, but like, I can't deal with like 
early makeups or something. And so you like learn these things about yourself and then it helps you kind of like navigate different situations because you really, you can like be more objective and pick like, yep, this is going to work. This is not going to work. Like pick that off the table, even though it could subjectively from other people's point of view, people could be like, oh, that's the end all be all like thing. You know, that's like the best team in the world or like the coolest opportunity. But for you, it's like, oh, that doesn't fit my personality. So you have to separate like the societal kind of wants with your own personality kind of thing. I think something that's really interesting about like those perfect scenarios is you talked about how you got into World Cup downhill racing, which I'd love I'd love for you to talk about that after I'm done talking, which should be soon, hopefully. <laughs> but it's like most people think that the people at the top of the sport are doing it a certain way. And it's like the red carpet is rolled out. And for most people, like that's not the case, especially whenever you're, you know, just getting started. And for a lot of people, even when they're at the top, it's not as glamorous or as easy or, you know, or you're like broke or whatever, but (laughs) yeah. So like, what was it like for you when you did your first world cup downhill race? Yeah. So I was saying that I got my first like real downhill bike in 20 or 2008. I guess when I was 18. And then I raced my first World Cup in 2010. So when I was 20 and 2019, I was up in Whistler and like separated my shoulder. I was like planning on racing one that year, but it didn't work out. So I was like next year. So I one of those mountain bikers that actually rode off a cliff that you were laughing at. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the funny thing about that break or like that separation was it was in Whistler. And if anyone has been there, it, you go up the chairlift and you go over these signs that say like re-ride, free ride, whatever. And there's a trail that's like totally flat and you go through these two trees and I was like, oh, I'm cool looking, whatever. And I hit the tree like riding on flat ground and just like oh, no. huge crash over the bars. And so it was like the most mellow part of the whole entire mountain and I crashed. <laughs> so that was that year. So I had this plan to go and ride world cup and i didn't have any points or anything like that so i went you had to i'd like read the rule book a whole bunch and i knew i needed to do like these cat one races and then i could get my pro license and then i needed uci points so i went to sea otter and was able to win that race in cat one which gave me my pro license and then i traveled around with my mom that year and we went to platakale in new york and i think i did okay there maybe i crashed and then i went to um Lake Tahoe and did that race and did well, but then they didn't pay points. So I went to national champs and like was having like a really great week. Uh, went there with my dad and we, yeah, like we didn't have any sponsors. I had bought everything. Like nobody even knew who I was. It was actually funny. I met Mitropolato, who's like an amazing downhill racer, bike rider in general. And like he, uh, <laughs> I had this new Fox Fork and he was like, who is this guy? Like, how did he get this? Like, no one has this thing. And I had just went to the bike shop, like on the way there, like, and just bought it. And like, all these people were like, man, like, who is this guy? Like, how do you get these like special parts or whatever? And so, yeah, I'd like gotten fifth in the qualifier and um, was having like this great run that would have given me enough points. And I crashed in the final. And uh, I was like super devastated because that was the last points paying race and um, would have had to wait, you know, for what, seven, eight, nine months or whatever until the next race and i was like you know what i like let me read the rule book again and i was like oh i can actually get on the national team like they select a couple of people to like race these world cups so i went to the commissaire at national champs i was like hey i want to race 
what can I do? And he's like, well, a lot of people want to go to the US Net, uh, World Cup this year. It's the first one in a long time. And our team's pretty full. And I was like, well, like, Italy is next week. Like, what about that one? And he's like, I mean, yeah, I guess. Like, you could go to Italy. Like, not many, then, like, not many Americans wanted to go to the World Cups. So I flew home, got my mom and my brother, and we flew to Italy. It's my first time out of the country. And uh, I had no idea what jet lag was. I remember like getting tired one day and being like, oh, it's like three o'clock. I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. And like my sleep schedule was just like ruined. And we, it was so funny to think about. We had no idea, but it was literally like me, my mom and my brother and, um, and my bike. And I had like a little toolbox, like pretty much had a multi-tool and like maybe one or two other things. And like, here I am in the pits at a world cup with like my bike flipped upside down and like behind the specialized big rig or whatever. And like, me and my brother like walked the track a bunch of times. And I remember he was there and I had been seeing all these people on the, on all these videos and movies and stuff. I was like, Oh, that's G that's Greg. And he's like, dude, you look so fast. I think you're like top three for sure. I think you've like, you've got it in the back. I was like, yeah, for sure. And then it like rained. Yeah. (laughs) We had no idea. It rained. Oh, there's actually, so it rained. And I was like, Oh, I don't like this. My brother was like, dude, like let me go and ride. And I was like, okay, cool. Like you take my, you take my gear and like take the bike and go down it. Like we're both like black guys. Nobody knows who we are. Like no one's going to know like whatever. And so he took my bike and like rode down the road cup track <laughs> for, for one of the practice runs. And yeah, so I ended up actually like qualifying by like broke my chain and stuff in qualifying, but it was Italy and the track is super steep. So I didn't have to pedal. And they took 80 at the time. And I think I qualified like 72nd or something. And it was a big deal because like, yeah, like not many Americans were racing World Cups and like to qualify was a a big deal. And I was like, oh, like, awesome. And people were like, oh my God, you're going to be so good in the finals, like with a chain and whatever. And I think I ended up getting like 60 something or whatever. But um, it was like this crazy year, right? Like even thinking back, like if I, if a kid came up to me and was like, Hey, like I, I've only raced like twice and I'm in cat one. I think I'm going to go and try to qualify for a world cup at the end of the year. I'd be like, that's cool, man. Like maybe think about it in a couple of years or whatever, you know, but, um, it's kind of like that ignorance is bliss thing. Like I didn't, I didn't know. And I was working like super hard. I was like riding my backyard and I made all these little ruts and stuff like that. But yeah, like to your point about, thinking that you need certain things. Like when people ask me like, Oh, I want, I need to be on a team. I'm like, why? And they're like, Oh, so I can go to the world cups. So I'm like, man, like just save up some money. Like you can go there for like 1500 bucks, like get a hostel or whatever, find a cheap flight and just go to one that you think you're going to do well at. And, and you don't need all of these things. Like it's like you were saying with the kind of the, the carrot on the stick where you realize after you get all of this stuff that, um, you know, you don't necessarily need it. Like I was, when I was talking to my friend, we were talking about that. It's like, Oh, like if I, we were kind of like talking about our perfect setup. It's like, he's like, dude, if I had a mechanic and a van and like some spare parts, like I would be set. Like I don't need a masseuse and like whatever, like all of this stuff is just like annoying or whatever, you know? But like from when you say that, you're like, what do you mean you don't want a masseuse? <laughs> That's perfect. Like, you don't want a massage after every race. And like once you're there, you're like, dude, like, like, yeah, I want a massage. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a trip. 
it's like super cool to think back about and it just like that i don't know that whole journey and after that like meeting Brendan Faircloth and Smith Martin and stuff like that and went to Crankworks and got like a couple of photos that were really kind of catapulted me kind of on the, to the scene and went to the, ended up going to that next race and like 50th or something because I didn't need points at the time since I had actually gotten them and it was just cool like to go and and experience that it was crazy Yeah, I always love hearing where people came from because often we don't celebrate how far we've come. We just look at how far we need to go. And it's really extraordinary whenever like you look back, like anyone listening, you look back and you're like, I've actually done some cool stuff. Like I might be hard on myself because I'm comparing myself to other people, you know, on social media or whatever, or like this ideal of what I think I should be. But then it's like, yeah, like we've we've done lots of great things in our lives, everyone listening. And and it's time to, to look back and celebrate those things. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more. Do you think that if you were at that first race and you had all those, like all that support and you know, what comes with that support, additional pressure to perform like, cause you've had, you've had both ends of the spectrum. Does that pressure take away from the fun? I mean, I think <laughs> there's this like misconception that, that if you do something that you love, then it's not a job. And it's like, totally not true. And there's like, sometimes there's like a really big delineation when that happens for people, right? Like for me, I think that it was kind of, it's probably maybe my like second year riding, bro. Like I uh, got on Yeti that first year and it was maybe like a, a couple of points in there where I remember feeling that pressure when like I had done bad at a race and they were like, I think we need we need a little bit more from you in these races. And like, you know, I was getting like this little small salary and I was like, oh, right. Like, I mean, I had been there before cause it was in motocross, there was a lot more pressure, but like in that moment, that was when it went from like all fun to like, okay, let's like, I need to train. I need to do this, this is my job. Like, you know, this is not just a, a thing. And um, it wasn't like, I wasn't trying before that, but it was like, you know, yeah, this is serious. And I think for an athlete, you, you're acutely aware of these things because it's not like a normal job where if I just go to a job and do my job, then I'm guaranteed a job for the next day or the next year. Uh, like if you don't do try harder than you did the day before, then you lose your job, right? Because that means that like if you stay the same and just do the same, then everyone else is trying harder, which means you go backwards and you aren't meeting your contractual requirements or whatever. And like you lose your job and it's actually really difficult to get another job. So I, I think that that pressure kind of comes, you're super aware of it when you're in that space. From the outside, it looks totally different. But I always say like people would be like, oh, you're living the dream, like athlete or whatever. And I'm like, oh, it's pretty difficult. like. And I think like now I'm like, oh man, I'm just like living the dream going to the, like when I go to the races at the World Cups, I'm like, oh, I'm living the dream. I literally like go have a microphone, like talk about the race and like explain to people what's going on, interview my friends, ask terrible questions because like they trust me or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it's pretty, there was, as an aside, like it was really interesting going to the first World Cup commentator, like doing the presenting stuff because I was up at like midnight the night before qualifying i was 
in my room by myself and I was like, holy cow, like this is such a different feeling than like I had when I was racing because like normally I would have been like, oh my God, I'm up at 12. Like I need to get some sleep. Well, maybe let me go over the track a couple of times in my head. Like, okay, let me, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? Whatever. And it's just, and I was just like, here I was just probably like reading a book or something being like, oh yeah, I guess, hmm, I guess I am in a world cup. Anyway, I go back to reading my book. And so I, it is like, there is a, a lot to <laughs> the mental side of like performance. Yeah. I think we could record an entire podcast on the mental part of racing and especially downhill racing. Cause you have to leave your mistakes in the past and like taking risks. And when, like you said, you know, you gotta, you gotta perform, but I want to change gears a little bit. And I want to read a quote from one of the, I think it's from your outside article. And you said on the surface, being one of the only black professional athletes in a white dominated sport has helped my career, but it's also been something I've struggled with. Can you talk more about that quote? Mm, I think what I was talking about is like, you have this kind of advantage in that, like you're recognizable and like people knew me, right? Like even if they knew me from like, just being that black guy at the race. So I had this like thing where I was like, yeah, I was the only black guy. Like I was also doing great. And I think most 99% of the relationships that I made were like based on my performance and like what I brought to the table. But I think that it is like something to be said about like being recognizable in, in a space like that. And I think like the thing that I struggled with was like, what does it mean to also recognize that you are the only black person there, right? Like what privileges have you had? Like what challenges have other people had that like doesn't allow them to be in the spot that you're in? Like even thinking about my life, like how many serendipitous moments where like, getting into it and going to Whistler, like I was just at the dirt jumps and I had a friend that was like, you know, that I had met down there. He's like, Hey, you should come up to Whistler. Right. And like, that's what set it off where a lot of people is in many different backgrounds, like wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to that. Like if you're living in a city, no matter what color you are, like you're not going to be down at some dirt jumps and have somebody ask you to go up to Whistler. And so the part that's like hard is like, okay, there is that piece of it. There is also this piece that's like, it kind of gives the impression that it's like, oh, because like Elliot doesn't like talk about race or being black or whatever, it means that like there's no such thing as racism and like everything like that it's possible to for like all people to achieve what we achieve in the sport. And so you have this thing, right? Like because you're not talking about it, it lets you get to this space and transcend kind of the other areas of your life. And then it also makes it maybe like that is the thing that you think about is like, have I also made it more difficult for other people? And just being there, I think it inspires people. But like, right, I think I don't know if there's a right answer, but like these are the things I was kind of like thinking through um, when I said that. Yeah. And honestly, like, I think that there's been a lot of really good, helpful stories that have come out in the last couple of years where people who are very privileged white people just didn't even realize what black people were going through during the, you know, behind closed doors and the, the hidden advantages that white people have had because you just don't even have to think about those things. Yeah. There is, um, I think that like the word privilege has like morphed into something 
unrecognizable. But when I think about that word, like it's not an unearned advantage, it's the lack of an impediment. And so when I go down and turn on my faucet, like I don't, I'm not like, oh my God, like I have clean water. This is insane. Like I can't believe there's clean water like coming out. You just turn it on and drink the drink the water. But like not everyone has clean water. And so like I don't even think about having clean water, but somebody else thinks about not having clean water every single day. And so I think that that is kind of when you think about like those advantages or disadvantages. And like, I think it's also like, one of the things I was like talking to one of my friends and I was doing this piece and we were, we were talking about kind of like some of the things that he had noticed over the years is like my teammate Bernard. And he was like, yeah, like I never even thought about it until like we were in Cairns in Australia. And like some guy was just like yelling, like racial slurs at you. And like, you know, we were just cruising. Like, he's like, I think it was at the airport or something. We were just, he's like, we were just cruising. Like you didn't do anything. And I was like, what should we do? And I was like, He's like, yeah, you just said like, let's just move on or whatever. And like, I don't even remember that. Right. Like, and I, we were talking about like how different that is, right? Like that, that is so, it's not like that happens to me every day, but that's like normalized, like something you have to deal with. And for him, that was like, oh, a pretty like life-changing experience where he was like, man, like here is one of my best friends. And like, I know that he's no different or whatever, but here's like somebody that like hates him just because of the way that he looks kind of thing. And so I think that because like I said, because like I'm not going and like shouting from the rooftops or whatever, like the disadvantages or not even the disadvantages, like I don't, because I think it's like those painful moments. And I think even with how I talk and try to communicate about these things now, is more so like at a human level, right? Like it's not <laughs> like, I'm not saying like, oh, like what was me? Somebody like shouted bad things at me it's, or whatever. It's, it's like, we should probably as humans not be mean to each other. And, and we as humans should probably have like equal opportunities to do things. Like you are just inherently less likely to do, to surf if you live in the mountains. Um, and so you could say like, oh, like people that live in the mountains just don't deserve to surf but you could also build a wave pool or something like that, right? Like there are things that you can do to like give people the experiences that like everyone has. So I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a really, it's really difficult. Like you have to be like the precision that you have to have with language is really hard to communicate about these things. It's like, it's pretty amazing because people, it's just so easy to like miscommunicate or communicate the wrong thing and have somebody like hop onto, oh, I don't believe this one thing or whatever, right? Or like, that's not how I would solve this problem or you're focusing on the wrong thing or like, I haven't experienced that. And you're like, well, it's not really what I had meant by that, but. Yeah, like they'll take it out of context. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, like you can you can take it out of context or like, I think it's just hard when you think about it from the other person's side where you're like, I don't have an easy life or anything like that. And I've never seen these things happen. I've never seen anyone be racist. I've never experienced that myself. And so like, why would I believe that it exists? And when you like think about it from that side, you're like, well, like, I don't know, like you're asking somebody to go out on a limb and believe that something that they haven't seen like actually exists and affects a lot of people. So you can kind of like, I don't know, like, I, I think it's just, 
for me, I think it's important to like try to understand like the different perspectives and so that you can better like communicate and say like, okay, like it's not right. Because at the core of that person saying that it's, it's that they're saying, well, I am, you're saying that I've like have something that I don't deserve to have. And that's like, not what you're saying at all kind of thing. Yeah. And you posted a video last year around the the George Floyd murder and about how the a lot of the cycling brands just weren't saying anything. And um, it was a really powerful video. There's a lot of media coverage about it. But what made you decide in that moment to post a video? Because you mentioned in the past, you you know, you said I'm an activist. I, I wasn't an activist about this. I'm an athlete. But now I've decided to to take a step and start saying something. Why yeah. that moment? I think um, like that wasn't like a big decision for me. It was more just like me blowing off steam and being frustrated. And I think that it, like if you took that again, like if you weren't, if you took that video and watched it now, it would be totally out of context because it would be, you weren't in that moment that we were in, you know, like at that time. And so I think for me, it was just like, hey, like you guys have been you guys don't hesitate to like advocate to put new trails in and whatever, like post stuff on your Instagrams about like a trail system getting, you know, run down or whatever, or taken out. But then like, here's a group of people that are saying like, Oh, when I go out and ride on the trails, like I feel unsafe or whatever. And so now you're not advocating for them, but you built your identity on like advocating to make, to let people ride bikes. So it was kind of, it felt a little like hypocritical to me um, that you are, an advocate for bike riders in one way, but like not advocates um, in all ways. And I, yeah, I think that like in that moment, it was, it was like, Hey, like, this is probably the easiest this is ever going to be like, just post a little thing. And I'm, I'm like, not that person. Like I don't really, it was, it was less the like inaction and more the reaction where it was like, ah, oh, like we're lucky that we don't have racism in bikes or like, yeah. Or yeah, we are in Europe and like, we don't have racism over here. So like, that was the thing that made me frustrated. Not like, oh, I believe that Trek should post a whatever post or whoever. I don't know if they did or not. But um, I think it was less about that because I, I like believe you, sh- you should be able to do whatever you want. Like if you don't want to post anything or like, like support whatever, like I think I would rather you explicitly say that you don't support something rather than fakely say that you support something because that gives me like an idea of like who I want to associate with, right? Like instead of just somebody posting something and then having a terrible culture or whatever. Yeah, I I actually think that that video is good to watch now because right now, like it's important to keep this going and to keep these discussions going, to keep this education going and I just really appreciated the courage that it took to put that video out. And it's, and I watched it again today and I was like, yeah, like this is something that I need to continue watching. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's like, yeah, it is. It's been like super interesting. I go through these like different, I think outlooks on things because there's definitely this like transition where I, you know, like I was saying, I didn't, build my career like talking about race or anything like that and then like posted this video and it like went viral and like i again was like the only black person that like so many people knew right like ceos and marketing directors or whatever and so like i was the person they called 
And so it was like, oh, like I can totally make an impact like behind the scenes, which is like what I'm passionate about is like actionable things. And like, I don't really see myself as like an educator. And so I was like, okay, I don't really want to say anything, whatever. And then like, I started saying stuff and I was like, okay, this feels okay. Like, I feel like I've kind of found my voice. And then every time something would go on a channel that like wasn't opted in, like I did something on, I think it was like on GMBN or something, or, and there's been a couple of them. And it was just like, I didn't actually look at the comments ever, but I had like five or 10 people like message me and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry with like all of like how bad the comments were and whatever. And I did something else for something. And it was like, just feels much different when somebody says, oh, I don't like the way that you ride a bike. Like, I don't like your style or whatever. And it's like, oh, okay, whatever. But then it's totally different to be like, oh, you're a terrible person. And I like, don't believe you should be able to ride a bike or whatever, you know, like something that's like really core to who you are as a person. And I think it took me a second, <laughs> a long, like a long time to even be comfortable enough to like, like deal with that stuff. Like, it's just a totally different way to think about it. And like, and I think so now I'm kind of, now when I think about communication, I think there are different ways to communicate, right? Like that video like will only resonate to people who are open to it. And so then like, if you are trying to affect the most people, like, is there a way to communicate where you are resonating with that group of people who is opted in, but then also resonating with people who are not opted in. And I, because I don't, I don't believe that it should be combative. Um, like what we're, what I'm trying to do, like getting more people on bicycles of all genders, ethnicities, like all of these things, like it shouldn't be controversial. And so if you can make it non-controversial, which is what it, to me it is, then are you able to like reach more people, affect more people and then do more good work? Yeah. And I think there's like a ripple effect of communication as well. Like you mentioned, there's people that are opting in to, you know, certain messages and then maybe they go into a room and there's people in there and then that person starts talking about it. And maybe that, maybe that one of those people wasn't opted into the video, but they want to talk to this person and then that person changed their perspective. So the, I think it can be a really powerful ripple effect of communication. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting. Like, I think it's interesting to think about like the thought of even trying to change someone's mind. And I don't feel like that's what I, I think that's probably why I like shy away from doing things that are, I don't know, more explicitly like against more explicitly controversial because like, I feel like my role is not, as I said, like not so much an educator to say like, Hey, this is what's going on. This is like what I'm feeling. This is like, let me educate you on like the black experience because there are like so many people who are amazing at that and like so much better than I am. But I think of like all of the people who are doing this amazing education and getting black people or, or women or, you know, gay people into the sport and opening it up. And then once you get there, like, where do you ride? Like who do you ride with? Where do you find a bike? How do you work on it? And things like that. And so like, if for me, like my role, I feel like is like the infrastructure layer where I want there to be a path to like entry. And then I want you to have a great time. Like once you're here, because again, like 
we're building a pump track in Los Angeles. And right now, if you were to try to get into mountain bikes, like you have to drive an outside an hour outside the city. So like, even if I'm super educated and the cycling industry is, is all on board and super inclusive, like that person in Los Angeles will still never be able to ride the bike. And so I think for me, it's like, how do we provide if I'm, if my role is the infrastructure layer and people and allowing other people to like have the voice of education and, and really teach people like why, what the barriers are, then I can say like, cool, now that we know that let's, uh, let's provide the path. Yeah. So like Grow Cycling, your nonprofit organization, you and Katie Holden, it's all about that. Can you, can you t- like, we're kind of running out of time, which <laughs> unfortunately, but can you talk more about Grow? <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I think that it started just because like of the realization of like, man, like I have so much, I have so much access and like, you know, can do so many things in this space that like so many other people can do. Like if there are passionate people about or people who are passionate about getting other people on bikes, but without the access of me being able to call up a marketing director or CEO and say, like, hey, like I think we should try to do this, or can you provide some bikes here? And so it was me saying like, how can I use that? And so the, the idea really is just to, again, like create these paths and like what we're doing so far is like putting a pump track in LA. It's like a Bella Solutions one, it'd be huge. We want to hold world championships there, the pump track world championships. We're also putting like all kids bike and outride programs in all of the schools in the school district around the pump track. So that'll be like kindergarten and first grade and then sixth through eighth grade, providing them like bikes and then putting in programs to connect those two things. So like, how does a kid know about the pump track once they go there? Like, can we provide mechanicing clinics and things like that? And then we also have a careers thing. We have a jobs board right now has like over 200 jobs on it. And I always say like, it's important to bring those jobs to light because I've never like applied for a job in the cycling industry, which is like great for me. But like, if somebody was more talented than I was, like they never even got a chance to do that, no matter what they look like. So like, how do you make it less insular? And so if we can bring all of those jobs to light, then you let people who do want to, you know, put in the work who are qualified, but just don't have those connections to actually apply for the job. And so you can kind of see this path starting to form where it's like safe place to like learn how to ride a bike in school, safe place to ride the bike at the pump track. And then, you know, you can then go on to have a career, whether it's like as a marketer, or maybe if you just find community in that space, you can just ride on Sundays around the park and stuff like that. So I think that that's kind of creating like community and and an ecosystem where you're really letting people kind of empowering people to build cycling culture in the way that they want to without imposing like the existing cycling culture Yeah, I think that there's your big picture thinker, you know, thinking outside (laughs) the box coming into play and yeah, having an accessible area where everybody is welcome to come ride. Everybody can go ride. You don't have to drive, like you said, an hour and building relationships based on a common interest that everyone has access to, which creates, I don't know, I, I, I would think that would create diversity amongst groups because everybody has access to that. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like, we don't, we're not excluding anyone, but like the way that you kind of do it is like, or the way that we think about it is um, like the city that we're putting it in is like 95% non-white. And so it's like, not that 
nobody can come there. White people can't come there or whatever. But like, just from the fact that like, you're putting it in this city, like when you go to the skate park in that city, you see a lot of black and brown people. And so like, to me, it's not that you, and the way that you build a culture. So like, you know, when we have an event, we want to get like the local barbecue place down. We want to get a local musician and like have music and all of these things where it feels like this city's culture rather than, you know, us just like plopping this thing down, leaving. And then next thing you know, like here I live an hour away and I'm like, dude, there's a sick pump track. Like I'm going to go and ride it. And the next thing you know, like it's, it's kind of turned into just another cycling space. So I think being really deliberate around like how you build the culture and the people that, that you are really focused on engaging is important. How can people support grow? We are at growcyclingfoundation.org and you can donate, but the thing like my ask always is like, if you are working somewhere in the cycling industry, like let your employer know about the jobs board. And then also like on the day to day, I think it's just really important to um, like think back <laughs> to when we were like all getting into the sport and that's how you should treat people where like we have the cycling culture of like, oh, you have to have the best stuff. You have to, you know, have perfect size socks and like whatever your tires too bald or whatever. And so we, you create these artificial barriers to people where they don't want to get into it because they think that they need a $10,000 bike, but like you really don't. So I think that if we can like start to create a culture that kind of is inviting and accepting of like beginners, that would go a long way. So that's like the biggest ask I have. Yeah. Be a good human. <laughs> be nice. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Think back to when you were a terrible bike rider and what you look like. <laughs> yes. Well, I wish that we could keep talking. There's so many more questions and things that I'd love to talk to you about, but thank you for taking the time to come on the show to talk about a multitude of topics and where can people follow you? I'm at Elliot Jackson. One L. <laughs> I have to take a break. I actually like did this, and they were like Elliot Jackson one L one T. What does that mean? But I'm at Elliot Jackson on Instagram, and my name only has one L and one T. And uh, hopefully, we can watch you um, ask your friends difficult questions for them on uh, Red Bull. <laughs> <laughs> totally, I know. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'll be commentating with Rob Warner uh, on Red Bull TV for the second World Cup, which is like Maribor. So that will be nerve wracking. All right, I'll be watching. Make it even more. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. I felt good for days after getting to talk to Elliot. Just talking to him online helped radiate so much positivity for me. And I hope that someday I get to see him in person. Make sure that you support the Grow Cycling Foundation and share the show with your friends if you think that they will find this useful. And if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show, that helps the show reach others as well. Thank you so much for being a part of this community and for being so awesome. I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.